0: If you would join me in prayer. Uh, Gracious God, we thank you for this day that you have made. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together as your church uh, and to spend time with you. And spend time worshiping you and learning of you, uh, of being filled and then being sent. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who speaks. And so, Lord, we pray that even now you would be preparing these words to somehow miraculously be your words. Uh, That the words we hear and the words that we process would be somehow your voice to us. That you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would teach us. That you would make us more like your son Jesus. We pray all these things in his strong name. Amen. Um, In uh, Reader's Digest a long time ago, a contributor... Uh, told of Aunt Ruby and Uncle Arnie who had adopted a baby boy after five years of trying unsuccessfully to conceive. To their surprise, a short time after the adoption, Aunt Ruby discovered she was, in fact, pregnant. And she later gave birth to a boy. One day, when the two boys were eight and nine years old, the teller of the story was visiting Aunt Ruby for kind of a follow-up. And a woman in the neighborhood came to visit. Observing the children at play, the woman asked, So, Ruby, which boy is yours? "Eh, Both of them, Aunt Ruby replied. The caller persisted, But I mean, which one is the adopted one? And Aunt Ruby didn't hesitate. In her finest hour, she looked straight at her guest and replied, You know, I don't remember. Today we're going to be reading about how we have been adopted by God. So now we are not just His followers, but we are actually children of God, heirs with Christ. And this is confirmed in us through the working of the Holy Spirit, which is what we're going to be talking about. But this assurance that we get in the Holy Spirit means that It's this kind of adoption. It's the Aunt Ruby kind of adoption so that when God the Father looks at us and looks at Jesus, if someone were to ask Him, well, sure, but which one's your real kid? I mean, which one's your kid? God the Father would also answer, you know, I don't remember. As we think about the immensity of this truth, let's review where we've been so we can figure out where we're going. Today we continue and come to the end of our second summer series about the Holy Spirit. We've already spent some time trying to figure out who the Holy Spirit is. Now we're trying to figure out what does the Holy Spirit do? And more specifically, what does the Holy Spirit do inside of us? Many of the passages we've been reading talk about how the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so a lot of the changes and the workings that the Holy Spirit does happen from inside of us Out. Uh, so the question is how will the Holy Spirit change us three weeks ago we talked about how the Holy Spirit's presence in us teaches us and reminds us of the teachings of Jesus in other words the Holy Spirit guides us by pointing us to Jesus helping us to know where to go and, and what to do and who to be Two weeks ago, we saw how the Holy Spirit inside of us grants us access to God the Father. That throughout history, in almost every religion, you and I don't have access to God. And so, there are these mediators, there are people in place to kind of be go-betweens. Except the Holy Spirit cuts through all that and gives us direct access to God. Last week, we talked about how the Holy Spirit in us guides us, sets our mind, as we set our minds on things of the Spirit, on what the Spirit desires. Uh, and as we do, we are given life and peace. Today, we will see how the Holy Spirit uh, assures us of a new reality. So, if you would, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, we are continuing the book, uh, the chapter 8 of Romans. Uh, we started it last week. We'll finish it next week. Uh, but Paul is in the middle of Romans talking a lot about the Holy Spirit and that's what we're studying. So we'll see what Paul says about Romans eight, eleven. Uh, and if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit. ...who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit of Sonship... And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Uh, As our passage today begins and as last week left off, we see again that the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. With all the power that raised Jesus from the dead and gave us life, with all of that power, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And because of that, we have an obligation. We must stop living according to the sinful nature and begin living by the Holy Spirit. Our passage then goes on to tell us about some of the benefits and advantages of having the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we'll talk about those in a moment, but first I want us to talk about a concept we see throughout this passage and really the whole New Testament. It's it's this idea of now but not yet. Throughout the Scriptures, there's this, this change that has happened, past and present tense, but it hasn't fully come to be yet. Something has been changed, but we're still waiting for the new reality to fully be revealed to us or in us. So here's an example. We know from the scriptures that Jesus saved us, so we are now saved. And yet we're still waiting to be with God forever. That's the part that comes not yet. So there's a finished component, and there's a not yet component. Or take what Jesus says when he says the kingdom of God is now. But we also see from the middle of our passage here that even creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Again, we see something has already happened, and yet we're still waiting for that to be lived out on a different level. Frankly, even the idea of good news, the gospel, good news... Implies that it's news, which means it's already happened, and yet we're still waiting for parts of that good news to seep into our lives and seep into our neighbor's lives and seep into our world. It's now, but not yet. Even at the end of our passage, Paul speaks of, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? Uh, but if we hope, we hope for what we do not have, and we wait for it patiently. We, we have been saved. We have the hope of salvation. That's that's past tense, and yet we're still hoping for some other part of that to arrive, to be lived out in us. Really, probably the easiest way to explain it is using the same metaphor that our passage uses uh, in light of adoption. In some ways, what this passage is saying is that we have been adopted. We have been chosen, We've, the paperwork has all been filed, the judge has approved everything, the adoption is done. And yet we're not quite living in the reality of our new family yet, fully. We've met our new parents and yet we haven't fully come under their care, under their roof, under the new reality that they bring to our lives. We've not yet fully tasted what it means to be family and again it's not that the adoption hasn't happened it has, it's done but the new reality hasn't fully sunk in yet hasn't changed us and we haven't fully lived it out yet throughout this passage as we'll talk about it we'll see this there's a now but not yet component to it there's a part of it we have received and is done and then there's a part of it that we're still striving to live out The main focus of our passage and of the sermon is about what happens inside of us because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And as we look back at our passage, we'll find that because the Holy Spirit is inside of us, we have received an expectation, an endorsement, and an experience. An expectation, an endorsement, and an experience. An expectation of how to live, an endorsement of who we are now, and then finally an experience of who we are becoming. And we'll talk through those three ideas. One of the first things we see in our passage is that because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, there's a new expectation about who we are and how we are called to live. Because the Holy Spirit is living inside of us and because we are now part of God's family, how we live reflects on who God is. And this is why our passage begins by telling us that we have an obligation now to put to death the sinful nature in us, to put to death the misdeeds of the body. To put it another way, if we are God's children, as the passage says, what we say, how we live, and who we are reflects upon our Father, upon God, it reflects upon our family. And while this probably isn't very fair to God, it simply is the reality of our world. I mean, I think we've all had the experience of being out in public and watching someone's kids just go off the rails, full tantrum. They're screaming, they're throwing things, pounding and kicking on the floor, they're yelling at the top of their lungs. And when you see it, you can't help but judge their parents, not the kids, but they're parents. Where are this kid's parents? Obviously, they're not doing a very good job with their parenting. Someone should step in and do something. Where are the horrible parents of these uncontrollable and inconsolable children? Of course, that's when normally when you realize that they're actually your kids, and that changes the whole story a little bit, but, but that's a different issue. The reality is we judge parents based on the behavior of their children. We learn a lot about who the parents are by what the children do and say. And if you don't believe me, you should talk to some of your teacher friends. They can tell you all sorts of things about the adults who are raising the kids that they care for. But therefore, if we have been adopted by God, there's a certain expectation, an obligation even, that we now have... To actually live that way. To actually live as if we are children of God. I mean, the idea is, if, if you could think of, if, if someone was God's child, if you met someone, I don't know, their name's Jesus, and they are the child of God, what would be some of the qualities that you would expect a child of God to, to live? Uh, and then, of course, those become qualities that we should be living. Probably means we should be above reproach that we should be kind and compassionate, that we should not be judgmental, that we should be generous, that we should simply be living differently from the people all around us. Because in some ways, that's how children of God behave. And if we are children of God now, then, then we probably should behave that way as well. Because what we do and how we live reflects on our good, good Father. All that to say, because the Holy Spirit is inside of us, there's a new expectation about who we are and how we are supposed to behave. Of course, with the Holy Spirit being inside of us, we don't just receive an expectation of how we are to behave, we also receive an endorsement of who we have now become. Our passage goes so far to say that the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You see, it's not just that we have been adopted by God, and it's not just that we think we are saved, it's that the Holy Spirit Himself inside of us testifies on our behalf that we are children of God. In many ways, we have been given through the Holy Spirit inside of us a deep assurance that not only are we saved, but that we are children of God. In other words, there should be no doubt from inside of us, or accusation from outside of us about our status as His children. It means that when we feel guilty for doing wrong, when we feel shame for not living up to the standards we're called to live to, when we simply feel unworthy, we certainly should repent of our behavior, correct our behavior, but we never are to doubt who we are because the Holy Spirit testifies that we are the children of God. And that's from the inside. It works from the outside as well. No matter what people tell us, no matter how they shun us or spurn us or judge us, no matter how much we don't feel included, no matter what anyone else does or says or implies, we never are to doubt who we are. Because the Holy Spirit inside of us testifies that we are children of God. And this makes sense, because if we are children of God, children of the good Father, it only makes sense that our status is secure, that our identity is permanent, that our love and our acceptance aren't contingent on what we do. but they're contingent on who He is. And we know from the scripture that He is unchanging. In many ways, I think this speaks to one of the primary fears of, of loving parents. The fear is that as as I try and parent my children, discipline my children, help my children go from being good kids to becoming good and godly adults, my fear is that at any point in that process, my children would doubt my love. That they would doubt that they are uh, a part of me, a part of our family. That they would doubt that I'm not 100% for them and proud of who they are becoming. Despite the fact that in that moment I'm parenting them for doing something that they absolutely shouldn't be doing. As a flawed but trying parent, I know that my love for my children actually has very little to do with what they do. And I hope that they know that too. But God, an infinitely better Father, wanted us to know that so much that He permanently sent the Holy Spirit inside of us to live inside of us and to testify on our behalf, give us assurance of our permanent status as beloved children of God. God wanted us to know that so much that He knew just saying it wasn't going to be enough. And so He sent His Spirit to live in us that we might know, that we might be assured of His love for us. So we see that because of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we have received an expectation of how we are to behave, an endorsement of who we have become. And then finally, we also receive an experience of how it will be. Our passage says that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit... Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That in some ways, even while we are here on earth, even before we have fully received the gift of eternal life and lived into that new reality, even while we still live in the now, but not yet, we still have been given an inkling, a taste, a glimpse of what it means to be children of God. I like that word in our passage, first fruits. Uh, that we have received the first fruits of the Spirit. The idea here is that as you plant your crops, some of the fruit uh, is ripe early, and you can pick that early before you have to bring in the rest of the harvest. What's more, these first fruits are especially valuable because they are the first fresh produce that we've had in almost a year. In an agrarian society, you plant, you harvest, you enjoy what you've harvested, and you store what you harvest. You store it so that you'll be able to plant next year. You store it so you'll have enough to survive the brutal winter. And you store it to survive the spring and early parts of the summer. Because remember, just because it's springtime doesn't mean suddenly there's fruit and food in abundance. That still has to grow, that actually takes measurable time. When the ground thaws, you plant seeds, but it's not food yet. You have to wait for the plant to then grow. You need your stores to last until those first fruits arrive. Even more than that, in the Scriptures, God asks us to offer our first fruits to Him as a sign of trust, as a sign of thanksgiving, as a sign of faithfulness because of who He is and all that He's done. In other words, regardless of how big or small the harvest actually will be, you don't know yet We are to offer the first fruits to God. Which means you could offer your first fruits and then disaster could strike your crops. Or you could offer your first fruits and and you have a bumper crop that year. But again, the offering of the first fruits was a sign of trust, it was a sign of thanksgiving, it was a sign of faithfulness, regardless of what would happen next. But therefore, when our passage says that we receive the first fruits of the Spirit, what it's saying is that we have been given something we've been longing for for a long time, working for for a long time, hoping for for a long time. In some ways, we've been given some of the best parts as a taste, as a foretaste of what is to come. And so if you've ever felt just a little bit of God's love, if you've ever felt just a moment of God's acceptance, if you've ever felt actually forgiven, actually that I did something wrong and, and that the slate the got wiped clean, if you've ever felt a moment of God's presence, a moment that was holy, uh, 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 that was just a foretaste of what is to come. In that moment, you experience a small sampling of the reality that we are living into. And yes, we still have to wait. And we do it patiently. But because of that foretaste, we also know what is to come. And in this way, the Holy Spirit gives us an experience of what it means to be the children of God. Throughout this passage, I am struck by the good news again of the gospel. As we look through this passage, I'm struck by everything that God has done on our behalf. Not because we earned it, not because of anything else that we did, but simply because He is good. God does all the work in this passage. Adopts us, sends the Spirit to endorse us, gives us the first fruits of the experience of His love, and it's only then, as the adopted children of God, that it becomes part of our reality to start living that out. But our adoption isn't contingent on living that out. It's because we've been adopted that maybe we should now start trying to live as if we are the children of God. Because we are the children of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You. We thank You for who You are and who we are in light of that. We thank You that You have adopted us, that You have made us Your children. Uh, And that isn't something that uh, goes away. That isn't something we we need to earn. That's simply because of who you are. So Lord, we pray that you would send more of your Holy Spirit into us. um, That we might understand the endorsement. That your Spirit testifies with us that we are children of God. We pray that we would have more tastes, more experiences of your love and your grace and your forgiveness in our lives. As we then try and live into that expectation that we actually are living like the children of God. So Lord, fill us even more full of your Spirit today. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand as we close in worship.